Welcome to episode 207 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know, it's getting to the point where in that small amount of space between the introduction and the conversation we just started... I'm impressed because our dance moves are improving. Nobody can see this, of course, but there's increasing amount of dance moves that happen in that silence. That's true. It, it originally was like a little bit of a head bob to like keep to like count out how many seconds we were going to pause. And now it's it's like a little mini rave. It's like a little jubilant expression of joy. Yeah, it's great. One of these days we've talked about this doing some kind of like live broadcast, like live yeah. over the Internet. And now my fear is that I'm going to forget that it was, it's live whenever we do it. And it's just going to be <laughs> me dancing over here while everybody else is fine. watching on and just sheer amazement. Yeah. Yeah. It might blow people's minds. It might be too much. <laughs> I don't think that they're ready for this jelly because wow. your body's so bootylicious. Wow. <laughs> that was that was so good and more than I could have ever I, I had ever to reach for. deep for that one. Oh my gosh, that was incredible. Well, until next time. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 207, the reformed bootylicious cast. Uh, we're complete. Uh, here on out. Well, we got a lot of good things to talk about in this episode, but so I guess we should just get to it. So this is an episode we actually intended to do, I think, three weeks ago, two weeks ago now. Um, but it was just it, we just kept getting like one after another current event kinds of things that took over the episode. So we, we intended to do it. And then the news of Justice Ginsburg's death uh, came and, and we had some conversation about what it means to respond as a Christian to the death of someone who is apparently apart from Christ and whether we should rejoice at that. And then, of course, uh, last week we talked about the goings on in Moscow. It's, I, I, we did hear that it's not Moscow. It's Moscow, <laughs> Idaho. We've been um, corrected. Uh, Moscow rhymes with Idaho is how I remember it now. Um, so we intended to do this in, in a time that was actually more timely with what was else was going on in the podcast world. Uh, but we are going to talk a little bit about 1689 federalism. And this the reason that we're talking about this for, for a couple reasons is it's kind of a perennial topic, right? In Reformed theology, there's always this tug of war between it kind of gets portrayed as like a tug of war between paedobaptists and credobaptists. But what we'll talk about tonight and what I think we'll find is that reformed paedobaptists or particular paedobaptists, no reformed credobaptists or particular <laughs> credobaptists. Um, I just got that. It took yeah, me a I got second. Confused. Particular paedobaptists. Right. Reformed baptists or particular <laughs> baptists. Um, what we'll find is that the, the tug of war actually is between two different understandings of covenant theology. Yes. Um, there are certainly Baptists that ha it has nothing to do with covenant theology. Um, those primarily exist outside of the confessionally reformed world. Um, you know, when you get to, and this isn't a slam on any, anyone I'm about to name, but when you get to someone like MacArthur or Piper who have a totally different understanding of what, what the overall hermeneutic narrative of scripture is in terms of covenants than somebody like a James Dalzell or Sam, Sam Renahan or somebody like that. Um, you're not talking about somebody within the confessionally reformed world. So when you get a confessionally reformed Baptist and a confessionally reformed Presbyterian or continental uh, reformed person in the same room and they're discussing paedobaptism versus credobaptism, it's a conversation that's not necessarily just about, and I'm going to read some quotes from one of the kind of key writers as we go. It's not just about who the proper recipient of baptism is. That actually ends up being a, a kind of a, um, a conclusion of the theology where in a lot of discussions about baptism outside of those, those bounds, that ends up being like the main sticking point that gets emphasized. So the reason I wanted to talk about this as a Presbyterian is this is honestly, uh, and this is a little bit of my disclaimer, I'm going to do my best tonight to try to be be honest in how I describe this theology. Um, obviously, I don't believe that it's biblical or I would be a Reformed Baptist and not a Presbyterian. But 
also the theology is confusing to me. There are there are places that I, I can't quite get my head around where uh, where they get a certain thought or how they make a certain argument or how it comes to pass. There are also some areas that I'm not actually 100 percent sure how it's even different than traditional Westminster theology that that I, I don't really get. So I'm going to try to be honest and I'm going to try to be charitable. But I wanted to talk about this because this was a discussion that happened on Distilling Theology. They had Sam Renahan on. He gave a very good articulation uh, of the theology. He's probably the, the leading voice in Reformed Baptist circles right now that's really working on this. Um, and then Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt came on on the next episode to talk about kind of 1646 federalism, if you want to call it that. So go check out their episodes. Both were excellent. They were both worth listening to. They're engaging, uh, you know, everybody's friends. So it was a friendly conversation all around. But there are a lot of people who listen to our show that don't listen to that show. So I wanted to have a chance for us to kind of talk about and describe that a little bit as well. Right. That's great. So by way of like introduction to just kind of set a little bit of groundwork here, for those that might be unfamiliar with it, what what is this 1689 federalism? Let me give like just a couple of words of introduction. We can get in some of the particulars because in this episode, we're basically getting on the nuanced Baptist bus right. and I'm going to let you drive the bus. It's going to be great. So 1689, here's how I would describe it. 1689 federalism is kind of, you can think of it as like a brand of covenant theology. Right. That's the way I like to position it. And of course, covenant theology is a particular theological discipline that's seeking to understand the unified message of the Bible through the study of the biblical covenants. And then, of course, how they coalesce to reveal the grand narrative arc of God's work and salvation. And 1689 federalism is a version of covenant theology held by the majority of Reformed Baptists who produced the London Baptist Confession of Faith right. in 1689, hence the name. And so this has a lot to do. And again, you're right on this because I think this can get really confusing, really nuanced, a little bit tricky in parsing out all the details very, very quickly. But basically covenant theology under the second London Baptist confession is generally going to see the covenant of grace as beginning with the fall in Genesis three and continuing through the old covenant and the new covenant. But it sees the substance of the covenant of grace as being the same as the new covenant, though not the old covenant. Right. Is that, is that enough of like people probably losing their minds right now? If you've never, you've never heard this before. I know that sounds like yeah. a, a lot packed in there, but I'm trying to distill it down into like a, a small, a small little bite for people to yeah. first get like a taste of. Yeah. And I think that's helpful because one of the things that I think this goes all the way back to, and I'm, I'm actually trying to get the audio files from uh, the Two Thieves podcast. They did a series that was very similar, and it was longer than what um, Distilling Theology did, where they had discussions about this and really talked through it. And the guys from According to Christ were on, and they, they did an excellent job. So I'm trying to get those audio files. But the one thing that I think we all should come away from these conversations that are happening uh, in various areas on is how close... Presbyterian covenant theology and reformed Baptist yes. theology really is how, how, right. how similar they are. And, and that should lead us to realize, you know, it's funny because I know a lot of reformed folks that think their closest allies or their closest theological siblings are the Lutherans because, Ooh. because the, the externals, and it's funny, you know, the, the administration versus the substance, the administration of our theology looks, <laughs> well looks in some ways, looks a little bit more like Lutheran theology, right? We have an emphasis on the Lord's Supper, right. we have an emphasis on baptism, we baptize children, the, the liturgy a lot of times ends up being the same. There's a seriousness about the scripture, there's a seriousness about ordination, there's a, a seriousness about confessionalism. Um, a lot of times that's an outside, you know, similarity, but in reality, the, the, the core of our theology, just in terms of word count, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, the 1689 London Baptist confession and the Westminster confession of faith are probably, it would, I should actually go and find some an analysis of this that gets the percentage of words. It's probably like 99% same wording. Like there's probably 99% overlap. So we should walk away from this, recognizing that our closest as a Presbyterian, and I say Presbyterian in sort of the broad sense, as a as a reformed paedo-Baptist who affirms a Presbyterian model of covenant theology. And I, mm -hmm. I know it's slightly different, but I would put the continental reformed in there and the Swiss reformed would all fall under that bucket, right? The continental, the reformed camp. Right. As that perspective, my closest theological relative 
is the Reformed Baptist who holds to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And even more so, because there are some 1689 people that sort of fall outside of this federalism group. The federalists in the 1689 tradition are the closest thing to Westminster Reformed theology that you can get without actually being Westminster Reformed right theology. Uh, you know, again, in sort of the broad umbrella yes. sense. So I think that's the important framework to set up for this conversation is how we really are just talking about like nuances, usually in in just slight differences in understanding of a few things. So it, it might be helpful to sort of like give some basic terms. So when we talk about these are things that we all agree on as Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians. The covenant of works is a covenant prior to the fall of Adam that man and God were engaged in. So God right. created Adam and some, some Presbyterians would say that the covenant of works was, was built into that creative act. I don't think that that's the majority and that's not the position I hold. So after, after God created Adam, maybe not temporally, but certainly logically distinct from creation, he entered into a covenant with him in order to preserve or to, to promote him to eternal life, to, to move him from this um, mutable, provisional pro, uh, probationary stage to a, a confirmation of eternal life. And the, the mode of that confirmation or the, the means by obtaining that confirmation was a works-based uh, federal merit. And so those are technical terms. We're not going to get into them, but more or less what it means is that God held out a reward and said, here's what you must do to earn that reward. Uh, that's still a gracious act because God did not have to put that arrangement forward. That's something that the Westminster and the, the 1689 group, we, I don't think there's anything we would say differently in those, in those propositions. Flash forward to the covenant of grace, which is the arrangement that God made between fallen man and primarily he actually made this covenant with Christ. So, so God makes the covenant of grace with Christ. And then those who are united with Christ by faith are now uh, under his federal headship. The same way that those who were united but, but to Adam by ordinary generation are under his headship. So those, those elements are the same. Where there's disagreement and where this is where it gets sticky is where exactly does that covenant of grace, where is that initiated? Right. Where does that happen? Where temporally in time does that covenant begin? And so the, the Westminster position would say that that begins in Genesis 3.15, that God makes this covenant, that he makes it, you know, this is actually some Westminster uh, guys, and I would count myself in this now, would actually say that the covenant of grace actually began in eternity past where the father makes the covenant with the son, and then that unfolds tempor uh, temporally in, in time um, as the covenant of grace as we know it, that the covenant of redemption in eternity past actually just flows into what goes on with Adam after the fall. Where the Reformed Baptist positions is different as they would say that the promise of this covenant and the benefits of the covenant are available to everyone from Genesis 3.15 on when the promise right. was first made, but that that covenant was not actually ratified or formalized or, or uh, uh, ratified, I suppose is the best word, until Christ actually dies on the cross. Um, and there's a lot of different nuanced reasons why why that comes to be. I don't know that we're going to get into all of them tonight. But that's kind of like the battle, battleground, if you want to put it that way, or the, the contest <laughs> arena. I don't know, like yes. the, the stadium that we're competing in is those are the terms. And it's really just that it's not a small difference, but it's it's that one central difference that really then unfolds everything else. And this... You know, one thing that I think that, um, you know, Carl Truman and, and uh, Todd Pruitt said in their interview that I thought was really insightful is this is not just a matter of interpreting a couple different verses differently. This really does end up being a, a hermeneutic difference that it, it's almost pre-biblical in terms of logically it's, it's something that undergirds the way we read the scriptures, not necessarily just a disagreement about the conclusions of the scriptures, but it has to do with presuppositions for how we come to the scriptures themselves. Right. You're doing a great job of driving this Baptist bus. So I'm trying. Far. I've, I I've that, been, that, I know we joke about not being prepared. I actually tried to do a bit of research for this one. I wanted no, that to was, be That was right on. Faithful. I think that's a helpful, uh, really helpful description. Also, like when you first started, I felt like we were having a moment there. I felt you were, like you were leading up to a confession to me because you were like, the, you were talking about all this great stuff about how like the closest person to you, the closest neighbor. <laughs> and I was like, it's me. It's me. <laughs> it's the Reformed Baptist. This is so great. Yeah, you're you're right on. And I'm I'm trying to, to actually 
disassociate or separate a little bit in this and trying to describe it. And that's how I was thinking about it too. I think what's helpful, this nuance that maybe a better word is like debate. And I think there's a lot of just like healthy debate here. I'm trying to understand what the scriptures mean in this very particular nuanced way. But, you know, Baptist covenant theology differs from like traditional covenant theology mainly. And again, that it's equating beyond what you just said, it's equating the new covenant with the covenant of grace. Right. So one of the things I want to ask is based on what you just said, then I'm guessing that often the way I interpret kind of traditional or say conventional Presbyterian covenant theology is the covenant of grace includes not only the new covenant, but also the covenants found in like the old Testament, which is Abrahamic mosaic and Davidic covenants. So is that what you're saying? Is that like the the view that you would describe to and also kind of as what you see as the traditional Presbyterian view of covenant theology? Yeah. So the, the, the classic Westminster view is that the covenant of redemption is a whole different animal, but that's made in eternity past among the members of the Trinity. Um, so, sometimes people will somehow ex- sort of exclude the Holy Spirit in that, but I, I'm not sure exactly theologically how they get away with that, but is made in eternity past. Then the covenant of works is made with Adam in the garden. Right. And by extension, um, by extension, Eve as someone who is under his headship. And then uh, the, 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 uh, the new covenant or the covenant of grace, you can call it new in some ways, but the covenant of grace is made, made with Adam or with Christ in Adam, sort right. of, you know, Adam is there, it's made with Christ, but Adam is participating in it um, in Genesis three fifteen. So when God makes the promise to, and this is something that we'll talk about when I, I get into us, you know, a little bit of the criticism I might have, but when God, God makes a promise, you know, there's a lot of different ways to define what a covenant is. The most common way that, that I've heard it said is basically a covenant. And this is actually Sam Renahan's definition. A covenant is a promise that's guaranteed by means of some sort of sanction or penalty. So if, if I tell you, I'm going to go to the store, that's not a covenant. Uh, it's not right. a promise, right? If I don't right. go to the store and you go, but you promised me, I'm probably going to say something like, no, I didn't. I just said I was going to do it, but it's not a promise. There's a, there's a different level. But if I say to you, Jesse, I swear to you that I'm going to go to the store and if I don't, then you can, you can punch me right in the face, right? That's a covenant because now I've made a promise. I've, I've guaranteed that promise by some sort of penalty if I don't engage in that promise, if I don't fulfill that promise. And so from the Presbyterian perspective, when, when God says to Adam, uh, more or less, I am going to provide a savior from your own, your own, your own line, and that savior will save you by means of giving his own life, right? The, right. you know, uh, the seed of the serpent will be over, will over, be overcome by the seed of the woman. But in the process, the serpent is going to bruise or, or crush this, you know, the, the savior's heel in the process of his own head being crushed. Um, that in my view is the initiation of the covenant of grace because, and this is maybe just to sort of fast forward to one of my critiques is, is one of the things that the Westminster thing, uh, the Westminster uh, position gets right that I think the the Baptist position doesn't is Sam Renahan in his book uh, in the mystery of Christ, which is kind of his newest entry. It's really a popular level um, explanation of the theology he right. makes the point that the actual uh, the actual blood release or whatever you want to call it, the actual like death of the testator is not necessarily has to happen, but the promised death of the testator has to happen in order right. for a covenant to be initiated. And so that's one of the things where I kind of scratch my head and I can't quite get to why this is distinct is he uses that example to say, this is the promise of the death of the testator, but then he doesn't make a jump to say, so now the covenant is initiated. He, he waits and says the, the covenant isn't initiated until the the testator actually dies. dies. Um, so that's one of those areas that I'm not hundred percent sure, but so that gets to the Baptist perspective. That's different is rather than look at it and say that it's just the promise of the death of the testator. That's that basically confirms and initiates the covenant. The actual death of the testator is required. And this isn't coming out of nowhere, right? There's the passage right. in Hebrews that says, no, you know, no, uh, the, the a testament is not completed until, until the, you know, the person dies. And that's a very contested passage in terms of how, how you even translate it. Um, so that's kind of the biggest difference is that the, the Presbyterian position would say that the co- the covenant of grace 
actually is initiated and in force in Genesis 3.15, carries on and finds its fullness and its culmination and completion in the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ at his death. Um, but that all of the subsequent covenants uh, through that time period, although there's this the weird Ishmaelite covenant in there that I'm not 100% <laughs> right. sure. Yes. I've never read any real reflection on what to do with that. So that's a, if you feel like an interesting doctoral dissertation, someone out there, how we integrate <laughs> or understand the Ishmaelite co covenant, because that is a covenant to get on this little digression. That's a covenant that's given to Abraham. Right. But it's related to Ishmael. So I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Right. But that aside... All of the significant major covenants throughout Old Testament history are uh, administrations, or you might think of them as like chapters within the covenant of grace. Yes. So the, the the book is the covenant of grace, and it it you know it starts on page one, even though it unfolds through the rest of the book, and each each discrete covenant. You know, namely the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, not in order, obviously, the uh, Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Um, those major covenants unfold and reveal the fullness of the covenant culminating in the new covenant where the Baptists would say those covenants are not part of the covenant of grace. Right. They point to, they make manifest, they reveal, they they give form to the promise. All of that language is used in different ways, but the actual new covenant does not happen. The actual covenant of grace does not happen until the new covenant is inaugurated right. in the right. end of the gospels or the, you know, Christ's death. You're hitting on the critical points. I like right. this. This is really great because What's, well, here's, let me say this first. I think this, what's super interesting is probably a lot, maybe even most of Reformed Baptists wouldn't be able to, maybe be able is the wrong word, but wouldn't necessarily articulate it the same way that we're talking about it here with respect to like, if you say, if you were to say, well, is this exactly what you believe? They'd be like, ah, I'm not entirely sure. Cause we're right. really parsing it here. I mean, we're, we're getting after it in yeah. trying to understand this. And if we start just with the idea of the covenant of grace is the same thing as the new covenant, almost everybody's going to be like, right on, carry yeah. on. But as such, this 1689 federalistic brand, the covenant of grace is coexisting with the old covenant, but it's not the old covenant. Right. That's, I think we keep saying this in different ways, but that's like the critical point. And so under the old covenant, you have these series of promises, like you were saying, it just keeps pointing towards the new covenant and won't be realized until that point. So right. the covenant of grace, a lot of 1689 federalists would say the covenant of grace was present. It's present in the Old Testament and is being continuously revealed in the old covenant, but it's distinct right. from the covenants in the Old Testament. Yeah. And so the Old Testament covenant or in the Old Testament, rather, the covenant of grace is being revealed mainly through this idea of promise, which you already right. elaborate on in like a really beautiful way. So as I understand it, like the covenant of grace is this execution of the covenant of redemption that was made with the elect in Christ, their representative head. And so in essence, they're both the same in that way. Right. If we make a difference, it's really only in this respect that the covenant of redemption is the eternal, like eminent working from eternity right. and the covenant of grace is the performance of it eminently right. like immediately after the fall. So again, like we're really, we're really parsing the language. Yeah. So concerning the salvation of the elect, there is but one covenant. I think like all our doctrinal standards and forms always speak of only two covenants in relation to man's eternal state, namely the covenant of works, which was broken by all men in Adam to condemnation. And then the covenant of grace made with the elect in Christ unto eternal right. life. But all of that, is is like what's a word that's even like more nuanced than nuance? Like German must have that word. Like because <laughs> this is again like when we talk about if you were to probably to ask like just your your average really you know a, a Reformed Baptist with strong fidelity to even that tradition and say like parse this out for me. Do you understand what it means to say that right. when you like in a sixteen eighty nine way that like the covenant of grace is the same as the new covenant, but it's separate and distinct in its substance from the old covenant. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm right. not thinking that's like most people's minds. They're, they're thinking of the promise, yeah. but even what you said about the administration of that, I don't think that's entering into most people's theology and maybe not even most Baptist theology in a practical way. Well, and I think that that's, that's where the sticking point is. I think most um, Reformed Baptists who understand this stuff and, and really are, are studying it would actually deny that administration substance. Yes. That, that's one of the, the hermeneutical... Yes. 
it's not even hermeneutical, but that's one of the underlying presuppositions is when a Presbyterian talks about the administration of a covenant, they're talking about the outward elements or the accoutrements, if you will. They're talking about the outward <laughs> outward manifestation of the visible elements of a covenant. And right so as a Presbyterian, I would say someone could be engaged in all of the outward elements of the covenant of grace and yet not actually be in the covenant of grace. And, and we know that to be true manifestly, right? It's just obvious when you look around you, there are people who are in the church who have been baptized, who take the Lord's Supper, who sing worship songs, who, who bow their heads when the pastor prays, who, you know, tie to the church, who are not saved, right? That, that's a, that's a, a proposition nobody denies. And even within the, the pages of the New Testament, we have Simon Magus, right? Who, who is said to his, he's said to have believed, right? The text says he believes, he's baptized, yet he does not receive the Holy Spirit. And when everyone else around him receives the Holy Spirit, he is basically told by Peter, you have no part of this. Right. right. So we have an example in the pages of the New Testament of someone who, who outwardly appears to be a Christian is participating in all of the visible signs of what it means to be a Christian, but in inwardly is not. And so that's for a Presbyterian. That's the substance administration difference is that the substance of the covenant is Christ. The substance of the covenant is Jesus. And so I can participate in all of the externals of the religion and not actually have Christ. Right. Um, it's not quite as possible to genuinely have Christ and not participate in any of the subs or the accidents or administrations where a reformed Baptist. And this is where I, I personally think is a weakness of the system where reformed Baptist looks at that and go, well, no, it's not possible. Participating in the administration is basically it's nothing. It's not a thing. And that's, you know, it's funny because we actually talked about this a little bit when I finished reading this book, he, Sam Renahan actually basically affirms exactly what I just said about the administration and substance uh, distinction in that he says there are plenty of people who are outwardly conforming to the covenant stipulations yet are, are covenant breakers. Right. Now I don't want to, I don't want to get like nitpicky on the language because I know there's a lot of that goes into how you craft a sentence and sometimes something just gets by, but strictly speaking from a reformed Baptist perspective, they're not covenant breakers because they never were in the covenant. Right. So that's one of those things that I look at and I'm not quite sure how they get there. I, I, I Sam Renahan's a sharp guy. He's not dumb. He's not, oh, he's not a stupid guy. So I'm sure that he could explain that. I would love to have him explain that, but that's the primary difference in terms of like how we look at the world now is that the reformed Baptist wants to say that the only person who's actually in the covenant of grace in any sense whatsoever is the person who's united to Christ. And if a person is not united to Christ, even though they may look like they're in the covenant, they're not, they're not in the covenant in right. any sense. Strictly speaking, there's no covenant relationship whatsoever. And the reformed Presbyterian looks at that and goes, wait a second, they obviously are in the covenant in some sense because they, they claim to be in the covenant. They're participating in all the rituals and, and, and rites of the covenant. Um, they're actually getting some of the benefits of the covenant. Not all of the benefits of the covenant of grace are spiritual in a strict sense. Some of them are temporal, right? Membership in sure. the visible church is a benefit. Right. Um, you know, the, the prompt for Presbyterians, the promise that our children are part of the community of God um, in, in some sense is a benefit of the covenant of grace. So that that's where I think the primary difference lies. And, you know, I want to reaffirm this because I think part of the reason why it gets so hard to really articulate these differences is because of how similar the theology actually is. I think there right. are some Reformed Baptists who would disagree with your characterization of saying that the covenant of grace is present in the Old Covenant or alongside the Old Covenant. And they, they would instead say that the promise of the covenant of grace is present in the Old Covenant. Right. And they probably mean basically the, the same, same thing, thing that you do. But that's that's another one of those things. Is, is the covenant actually present or is right. it not? You know, I think Sam Renahan would say it's not, it's not, it's made manifest or it's, it's set in front of you by the promise the same way that, um, in a certain sense, you could think of it almost like a credit card, right? What a credit card represents is my good word that I will come up with this money within a defined period of time. That's, I know you're an economist, you're not, you're a finance guy and you're just, you're screaming inside, but from a lay person's <laughs> perspective, <laughs> when I, when I hand the person at the, 
at the pizza place my credit card and they put it on credit, which I don't do very often because I, I went through Financial Peace University. But when I hand them my credit card <laughs> and they they take it and they scan it, that's me holding forth the promise that they will get their money. You know, they get money from a different party you know, in a complicated sense. But that's the promise. <laughs> so is my Great. am I actually handing them the money or not? I would look at it and say, in a certain sense, that that difference doesn't really make any difference. As long as I'm good for it, then it is a foregone conclusion. The money is as good as in their hands. I'm not immutable, but God is. So when God holds forth the promise, the promise is as good in your hands. And so this is this fine nuance between what a Presbyterian would say is that you're participating in the substance through the promise, right? You get Christ because you're participating in that promise in the old covenant, where the Presbyterian says, no, you get Christ because you're participating in Christ. So the substance is present in shadowy form, but the sure. substance is still present. Where the Baptist wants to say the substance is presented in shadowy form, but is not as as of yet present, like in a ontological real sense. The, the saints were looking forward, and this is, you know, Hebrews 11. They were looking forward to a promise that they had not right. yet received. Right. right. That's a verse that Presbyterians really need to grapple with. But then at the same time, the mark that they received in their flesh, that Abraham received in his flesh, was the seal of the righteousness which he had in Christ. So there's, it's not to say, kind of like we joke, there's no Arminian verses, there's only Calvinist right. verses, right? There, there are no Reformed Baptist versus Presbyterian, you know, verses. The verses are, are one. There's one meaning of the scripture, and one of us is right and one of us is wrong. But our positions are so close that a lot of times it's it really is the difference. And, and I, I did it on purpose. The difference between the substance being present and the substance being presented. Right. It's two letters and the difference in that sentence. But it's all the difference in the world in terms of the two the two theological positions. Right. I agree with that. I think that is a fair critique. That's again, this is a debate almost as old as time itself, as long as. The scripture has been available to mankind. Man has been debating this particular facet. And I do think you're right for the most part in the characterization that Reformed Baptists, particular Baptists, maybe even these 7th century dudes, they tend to see this as more binary. So like whether or not the the covenant is efficacious for those that are merely play acting in the covenant. I mean, they're, they're trying, basically what they're trying to do is they're going to the eternal destiny, click double clicking on that, dragging into the present and saying, well, if this person is not, is the eternal destiny is not that they have been elected, then why are we even debating about this covenant thing in the present? Because clearly they're not part of it. And so therefore we do tend to throw a little bit of the baby out with the bathwater there. If only to emphasize that point that like God himself does the saving and that because of this, even if there are, and I don't think, I don't think Baptists would necessarily say that there aren't benefits of being part of the visible church, right. just merely that they're trying to really be particular, no pun intended, about how they separate out whether or not those are covenantal. Right. And they're just trying to, of course, provide an, I would say, just really trying to respect this idea of what it means for God to save the elect through all of the covenants which he himself brings forward onto mankind. And actually I would say your example of the credit card, that's like super good actually, because, but I'm going to say this, <laughs> I think it actually might, might prove the reformed Baptist perspective better, <laughs> only because it's like, what we're talking about is a card that represents. Um, so the card itself is, is yeah, it is a promise of sorts, right? But like when you swipe it at the pizza place, they get their money right away from the credit card issuer, and then you're going to go back and pay right. the issuer of the credit card itself. So in some way, we're talking about two separate covenants here. But what they represent is there is some unity in in them. There is some right. continuity between them, but right. they are very different things. Even though it's representing one transaction behind the scenes, there are yeah. separate things that are occurring. So, 17th century particular Baptists, if I can just like might take them out and put them under the microscope as their own thing together, almost an objective sense. They understood that recognizing the continuity between say, for instance, Abraham and the church necessitates some theological nuance. It is necessary. Everything you've just said is stuff that like there, I think those guys would be like, yep. Okay. We get it. We see what you're saying. We, we see that point. We have to make sense of that, especially since God commanded Abraham to place the sign of the covenant on infants. Right. Right. So, this nuance, I think, is represented, at least from their perspective, in the duality in the Abrahamic covenant by asserting that Abraham had two distinct sets of descendants under two covenants right. with two purposes and two destinies. So yeah. you have Abraham's carnal seed, which was receiving the covenant of circumcision, whereas his spiritual seed received the promise. 
And so his cardinal seed existed solely to preserve the messianic line and typify the New Testament church, whereas his spiritual seed were set apart as a spiritual people to God. And then you have his cardinal seed was given a physical inheritance, you know, land, seed, blessing, all that stuff on earth, whereas his spiritual seed was given a spiritual inheritance in heaven. So right or wrong, that's the way I understand, again, like this six, this is a particular brand. We're talking about like a really deep flavor of, you know, Reformed Baptist thought embodied in this 1689 idea. So, but I'm with you at the end of the day in, in the final analysis, it's all super close, right? It's all super, super close. Yeah. And, and I don't think anybody is denying, I think we would both agree that again, being part of the physical or seeing the visible body of Christ confers certain type of benefits. It's almost like we're trying to understand, well, from whence do the benefits come Right. And how do we label and understand them? Now that right. that's an oversimplification because Presbyterians are like pulling their hair out everywhere over me saying that because it makes it sound like I'm cheapening the benefits if they're not associated in some way with the covenant, either right. a shadowy or not. But I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm just merely saying that I think we're very close to being on the same page here. We're just trying to understand and compartmentalize the covenants, if indeed they should be compartmentalized at all. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Am I being like really uncharitable? I think it is fair. And I think, you know, this is one of those things. And this is the point um, that's made. I want to make sure I get the title and the name right, because when I was talking about it before, I got it wrong every single time. Um, this is the point I think that's made. The book is called The Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology, and it's by Pascal Denault. And his thesis, more or less, in, in the book is that the difference between particular Baptists and Westminster Presbyterians is ecclesiology on a, on a, on a really fundamental level. It's a difference mm. in ecclesiology. And, and a way to think about it is this, is in, in the eternity past, right, God's God contemplated the church or when God thought about, quote, my people, he had a particular defined set of people that he was contemplating and he contemplated those people in Christ. Right. So that's the same reformed Baptists, Presbyterians would be lockstep on that in the garden. When God said, this is how in a hypothetical sense, I'm going to unfold that, that will Adam is going to be given a test. If he passes the test, hypothetically, then then those elect people will be in in him. I'm not. I mean, I don't know in time how that would work out. We don't really need to parse that out. That we actually would agree on, right? When we get to the end times, past the resurrection, God's people again will be those whom he has foreknown and predestined and justified and glorified. Right? We're in the same spot there. What is different, and maybe to kind of wrap this up on a broad sense, what's different is that in-between time. Yes. This in-between time now is where we disagree with who should be counted among the visible church. Right who on. should we, and when I say visible church, right, we've talked, we talked about this when we talked about the confessional position on this. Baptists, when they talk about the visible church, they're using that category. And actually the, the Westminster, the, the London Baptist Confession sort of pulls back on that distinction a little bit. It's still there, but they pull back on it a little bit because the ideal circumstance in, in this world would be that the visible church, and this is paraphrasing what Sam Renahan says in the mystery of Christ, the visible church and the invisible church of, of living people who have not yet passed into glory, those two things would be as close to identical as possible. So, so this is where you get the idea that before we baptize somebody, we need to sort of understand whether their profession is credible. We need to have certain signs that they genuinely are Christians. There's a certain level of assessment that happens typically before you can be baptized in a reformed Baptist church. That is a whole different question, but they would say that the only people who should be counted among the visible church on the membership roles, as it were, are people who have a credible profession of faith. Because as close as we can, we want, we're shooting for a regenerate church membership. Right. Where Presbyterians go a little bit differently is they, they say, well, yeah, that's great, but, but nothing that we have, we have no access to invisible categories. There, there's nothing that we can look at by definition that shows us invisible categories because you can lie about being a Christian, you can make a false profession of faith. And so Presbyterians, generally speaking, say that the visible church 
is based on what we can see, our visible signs, visible right. indications. And one of those differences is that that Presbyterians, on the basis of certain presuppositions about the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant with the covenant of grace and that the new covenant would say that the visible sign of the covenant of grace under the administration of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. That sign persisted into the mosaic and then sort of by default into the Davidic. And thus when that sign was transmuted or changed to baptism in the, in the new covenant administration, we should apply those to the same persons. And in fact, it expands in the new covenant. So those visible signs being applied to not only the, the people who are able to profess pay, faith, but also their children, that's where baptism comes in. And so for the Presbyterian, they're looking at it and saying, this is the circle of people that we consider part of the visible church. And as part of the visible church, they, have, they are given the, the title Christian. The member of the visible church and Christian are synonymous terms in Reformed Presbyterian language. Right. right. So that would include all, all people who profess faith in Christ outwardly. Right. Remember, we can't see their internal state. So we're even even if we're talking about a profession of faith, we're talking about an outward visible sign. It's their profession. And then subsequently, it's their baptism upon profession. And then their children are comprehended with the parents, as I think it's the Belgic Confession puts it that way. They're comprehended in the parents in terms of their status as covenant members or, or visible covenant members. The Baptist perspective is trying to trying as best as it can to utilize outward signs to assess invisible realities and then base covenant membership on those invisible realities. Uh, obviously, like I said at the beginning of the show, I don't think that's right or I would be a Reformed Baptist. But it's understandable with the presuppositions that they're making that that is the conclusion that's, that it comes to. And it all rests and it all lands in the sphere of theology, of ecclesiology. It's all about who is and isn't to be considered a member of the, of the visible church. In the, the Baptist world, they're trying to replicate or trying to map up the invisible church as closely as possible. In the Presbyterian world, it's funny because sometimes people want to act as though Presbyterians are more dependent on invisible mystical realities than, than Reformed Baptists. Um, it's actually kind of the opposite in some senses is Presbyterians are much more comfortable just resting in the fact that we can only see what we can see. And God doesn't expect us to make decisions based on what we can't see where the Baptist position is trying to in good faith and for biblical reasons is trying to make that decision about who's a part of the church on that invisible reality. Right. And since time absolutely eludes us at this point, I would recommend everybody go back and listen to the episode we did where we talked about Pedo and Credo Baptism yeah. at length together. That was a beautiful conversation. And I think for the most part, that's a fair characterization. I mean, I, I understand what you're trying to say there. And so I would rather than try to elongate the conversation now, which I'd love to do, but probably people don't want to listen to us talk for another five hours. Just go find that episode. Go to reformbrotherhood.com, search for... I don't know, baptism? Yeah, I think it's just called baptism. I think it's just called baptism, yeah. And you'll be able to pull it up right away. But I'm hoping that at least if people are unfamiliar with what 1689 federalism is, or they see these words kind of plastered somewhere online, that this was a good auditory primer. And maybe you can go jump into it a little bit more, have some more conversation, or look it up now and have a maybe a greater sense of comfort, or you have a little bit of a foundation on which to understand what that thing even is and why it's different from like Westminster federalism, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, I just want to make sure I, I list a couple resources. So obviously I've mentioned the Distilling Theology interviews. Those are both great if you want a podcast to listen to. Distilling Theology is great, so just go subscribe to the show. Um, I already referenced Pascal Denault's book, which is called The, ba the Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology. That's um, good. A, a better treatment, I think. Uh, that book is a little bit more historical. He dives into the original yes. source a little bit more. Uh, Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Kingdom by Sam Renahan is excellent. It's a very good treatment of it. Again, there's a lot I disagree with, but uh, I'm a Presbyterian. And then I have not read this yet. I have it. But Sam Renahan basically did his dissertation on this subject of identifying a distinctive Baptist theology, uh, Baptist covenant theology in the 17th century. And so his, his dissertation was published into a book called from shadow to substance, 
right? That's that's the whole thing. Yep. From Shadow Substance, The Federal Theology of English Particular Baptists. And this is really more of a work of historical theology, of documenting the theology that was developing and the, the positions that were developing. I have not read it. I've heard it's very difficult, but it, I've heard it's very good as well. I'm familiar with that vaguely. I think that it, all those are good resources, especially if people want to get, yeah, that's it. Yeah, if people want to get after it. Sorry, Tony just held it up. Nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I suddenly was having an internal dialogue and I was like, oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's um, it. Those are all great. And it's, I mean, you're going to have to nerd out a little bit on this because yeah. in, in general, this topic is a little bit nerdy, but it's, it's worth understanding. I think the way that you brought out and kind of the entry point that you dove into was this idea of like church membership more specifically or how we understand the visible church. I think that's fair. And again, I think that we just have differing perspectives on what it means when we say right. we're part of the church. And basically we're, all of us are in some ways like fencing that, right? We're using our theology to understand who's included and who's not. Right. It's just a matter of what are the underpinning pieces of theological data right. that we're using to yep. make that decision. But what I want to end on that I think is helpful is where both of these camps are trying to make that decision. They're trying to have strong fidelity right. to the scriptures and understand this is an important thing. We need to understand it. We need to respect it. And so it's not just we can be like fast and loose with God's covenants or trying to understand who it is that we include or exclude or how we speak to those people, how we preach them. You know, we're going through the Reformed Preaching series, talking about all this stuff does matter. So right. while it may be nuanced and nerdy, it's not to say that it's impractical. So right. maybe this will be a good way to get people kind of thinking in those terms and who knows, maybe somebody will be inspired to, like you said, write your, write that, not your, but write a dissertation based on your recommendation of the, yeah. of Ishmael. The Ishmael that, covenant. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to drop this out there and then end the show and oh, see no. how much hate mail we get. I'm not actually convinced that oh, Ishmael no. was not saved because there's a lot of text <laughs> reasons why. I knew, th I knew you were going to go this way. Why I, I think that may be this. the case. So maybe on a future episode, we'll have to talk about that. That's like a super ultra high, yes. like, like top shelf nerdy theological argument question to have. But I, I actually think there's good reason to think he may have been among the faithful, even though, yes, I know that the book of Galatians exists, everybody. I understand. I've read the book of Galatians before. I understand that Hagar. And yeah, I get it. I get it. Stop it. So please send your hate mail to less at the reform podcast. I don't know if that's actually an email or not, but um, yeah. So as I said, I've tried to be charitable and I've tried to present this theology accurately. Um, I don't know how well I did. I guess we'll find out. Um, I'm sure that I'll have some uh, some emails from some of the other members of the SORP if I didn't do that well. But um, check it out for yourselves, though. I mean, we, we always say that is don't don't just take our word for it. There are lots of great resources out there. There's lots of good uh, ways to dig into this. Um, and it, it's it's important because the, the same way that you are a lot of times you're closest with your family. You know, two, right. two brothers are probably closest to each other in the world. The, the, you know, our closest friend growing up is probably one of your siblings if you have siblings. A lot of times the biggest fights that happen between family members are because there's so much common ground that the areas that aren't common ground seem like such a bigger deal than they are. We're so close on all these things. How dare right. you be different on this one thing? And a lot of ways that's <laughs> why I think arguments between Presbyterians and Baptists get so heated online is because we are so close. And so we're trying to, to hammer out these differences. And I, I know because I've said this and I've also had it said to me is I, I've said, and I thought like, I can't understand how you can hold the priest, the same basic theology and come to such a different conclusion. Right. That's frustrating. But what I want, what I hope that you've seen tonight and, and or today, whenever you're listening to this and you're not seeing anything, what I hope you've heard and come to the conclusion of is that we really are in the same family, right? The, yes, the, the, for the, sure. we, the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession in 1689 are so similar. And that was a self-conscious decision that the 1689 framers made to exist within continuity of the Westminster tradition. They saw themselves as closely aligned. And that's 
that's why they chose to basically use the same confession. All jokes aside about rough drafts, final copies, cheating off one other person's, all of those jokes and memes are funny about one being a copy of the other or whatever. But the reality is that the, the similarity should drive us to understand the, the other side of the conversation as someone who's incredibly theologically close to us and is probably right. our closest ally. And the same way two brothers might fight over something that seems trivial, uh, but the second that one of those brothers is in trouble, the other one is there to help. The second one, one of them gets in a scrap at school and the other one materializes out of nowhere and is ready to rumble. Like that's how we should be with our with our Reformed Baptist or Reformed Presbyterian brothers. We can bicker and fight about stuff all we want behind closed doors, but when we get into a conversation and there's a theological point to be won, and I don't mean that in like winning the point, but I mean like when there's a theological battle to have and it's important, that's when we lock shoulders and say, yeah, we're a little bit different on some of these things, but we're so lock stepped on everything right. else we ought to be at each other's best allies in this fight i agree so hopefully christians can have more a little bit more conversations like this it's okay to debate it's a little bit fun it's okay to have a riveting and robust discussion about these yeah. things and use it in a, such a way that it spurs us on toward greater faith and obedience to the, our lord jesus christ and more appreciation for what god has done and really the dynamic beautiful way in which he has come to save us from eternity past with respect yeah. to the covenants that he's made and his loving kindness represented in each of those covenants. And in some ways it's a great, I love talking to you about this kind of stuff because it allows me to take the theology, which is a jewel again, and like turn it over my hand and see it maybe from a different angle. And whether or not at the end of the day, we come to uniformity with agreement with the, all the particulars here, we know that on the essential things we're, we're right there. And in fact, like if I was in like a thread with you online and I don't know, like some Lutheran person was like said to you, you can't baptize your infants. I think I would come to your defense and be like, don't tell Tony he can't baptize his infants. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's to your point, is at the end of the day, I know that we're after the same thing, which is really to fall headlong into God and to honor and worship him. And that's what we're trying to do in these conversations, parse out our understanding of that so that when our mind is transformed and renewed, so also will the heart be in accordance yeah. with the Holy Spirit. And then our living and our behavior and our actions will all also follow suit. So I will still defend your right to baptize babies, even though I just can't get down with that jam, but I'm still <laughs> going to, I'm still going to always get your back for All sure. Right. Well, I'll get you eventually. I am driving the bus eventually. What you don't realize is the last stop of this bus ride is the Jerusalem chamber. So not the podcast, but the place where they wrote the Westminster. Yeah. No, no. I appreciate that you made that distinction because everybody was thinking you were talking about the podcast. But <laughs> I, I knew when I started, when I set up this metaphor of you driving in the bus, I knew I was actually, I should have started a, a pool with myself how long it would take before you would just take this bus wherever you wanted to. And I knew that was going to, I knew that was going to happen. You're going to be like, I'm just driving this right into Presby land. All right. Well, now that we are in Presby land, we're not actually, but until next time, Jesse honor, everyone love the brotherhood. Oh.